When I say the names, these names, LeBron James, Simone Biles, Taylor Swift, Michael Phelps, my guess is when I say those names, the, the thoughts that come into your mind for most of you are going to be thoughts of greatness, thoughts of accomplishment, thoughts of, wow, they're at the top of their respective fields, whatever that may be. And probably if someone were to ask you, hey, why do you think LeBron James is considered such a good basketball player? You'd be able to answer that question if you're a basketball fan or maybe even if you're not a basketball fan. Or if I asked you, you know, why is Taylor Swift such a popular musician, which I would probably ask that question, you would probably be able to give me all the reasons why if you were a Taylor Swift fan. And you'd be able to back that up because you'd say, look at all of the accomplishments that prove their greatness. But I wonder, and what I want to ask you tonight, if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, why is Jesus, why is Jesus more worthy of our worship and our devotion than any of the other gods that are out there? Why is Jesus more amazing than Allah or Buddha or fill in the blank God that such and such worships down the street? Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? That's a question that the Bible thankfully answers for us. And as we talked about last week in our first point, and if you weren't here with us last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message, but we can trust the Bible. It's one of the most well-attested works that we know of. It's one of the, the top well-attested, if not probably the top well-attested as far as manuscript evidence and all of that. Don't worry, I'm not going to go back into all of that again. If that was laborsome for you last week, I'm done with that. But all that to say, you can rely on what the Bible says. And the Bible answers this question. Why is Jesus more worthy of our worship than any, anyone else? And it's because of how Jesus is described in the Bible. He's described this way in different passages, but the passage that we're going to look at together tonight is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And the way that Jesus is described in this passage, these seven statements that our writer makes about Jesus, no one else, no one else who's ever lived can say, yeah, that describes me. Or you can't point to another person and say, yeah, that describes them. They only fit Jesus And when we see what these statements are all about, that's why you're going to be able at the end of the night be able to say, yeah, that's why Jesus is worthy of our worship. If you're not already there, Hebrews chapter 1, I would normally say, hey, pick up at at this point in time, but let's just start at the beginning again. I'm just asking you to back up one verse with me, right? The writer says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke. Remember, we talked about that last week, that God is not a God who is silent, that he has spoken to us. And he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the, the Old Testament scriptures, right? But now in these last days, the last days are the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. In these last days, he's spoken to us now by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, this son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We just sang that, by the way. I don't know if you picked up on that in uh, Nothing Compares. You sang those exact words the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to stop there for tonight. I think that's enough for us tonight. There's a lot here. 
And when we read the Bible and when we study the Bible, we, we have to be careful. When we hear sermons, we have to be careful because sometimes we'll hear a passage that's so familiar to us that we kind of like disengage. We're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Christmas story, even Easter story, right? The resurrection Sunday story, the, the, the cross and the empty tomb, triumphal entry. Okay, I, I get all that. Jesus died. He rose. I, I, I understand. Or maybe David and Goliath. And you're like, okay, I get it. David wins and I'm not David. Or maybe Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, the, the lions, yeah, they were hungry lions, but Daniel went down and, and God miraculously closed their mouths. Or you think about Jesus calming the storm. You're like, oh yeah, the fishermen, they were seasoned fishermen. There was a really bad storm. You feel like you could come up and preach that passage. And so you hear the sermon and, and you kind of disengage and you turn your mind off. Which even on the texts that are familiar to us, guys, we shouldn't do that. We need to listen to God's word afresh every single time we come to the word because the spirit is always working to teach us something through the word. We never graduate from a passage. I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible, you can always come back and learn something else from it, right? But then there's other times that we come to a passage and maybe it's not familiar to us, but, but a passage like this one, where we read these statements, these statements about Jesus, like the ones that I just read, that he's the, the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And, and our minds begin to lose their ability to comprehend what the author's really talking about here. And so we can do the same thing. We can kind of disengage and shut down. Well, let me encourage you and plead with you and beg you, please don't do that. The, the Bible is understandable if we will apply ourselves to understand it. See, if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, the Apostle Paul tells us that you are able to discern spiritual things. In other words, you're able to understand the scriptures. So even when we come to the passage like this and we're reading things that it's such lofty language and such superlative language about Jesus and it can kind of make our minds go, whoa, I don't even know how to understand this. Sometimes when we're doing our daily Bible reading, we just kind of glaze past it and we move on and we look for something that we can grab and and hold on to. But let me just ask you tonight, just come with me in this passage because there's so much for us to learn about why Jesus is worthy of our worship. The first statement that we find in this passage is that he is the heir of all things. An heir is somebody who's going to receive an inheritance, right? Think of some of the most wealthy people in the world right now. Jeff Bezos is worth $156.7 billion. Imagine being the heir of Jeff Bezos. Sign me up, right? I'd take a portion of that. Elon Musk is worth $153.2 billion. Bill Gates, his, he's only worth $96.5 billion. And Mark Zuckerberg, he's really not that big of a deal, $62.3 billion. But imagine, right, being one of their heirs. Now, I'm glad none of you are because I don't think any of them follow Jesus and love Jesus. And I'm glad that you're not one of their heirs because I don't know where you would be, right, at this point in time. But imagine just from an earthly perspective of saying, man, I, I stand to inherit $157.6 billion. Dad, don't do anything to screw that up, please, right? But at the same time, you would eventually run out of things to spend that money on, wouldn't you? Even right now, you're sitting there, and I was where y'all are at. I remember being in college and not having two dimes to scrape together, right? I know sitting there going, please give me that problem. Like, I'll take it. I'll take the problem of having too much money that I don't know what to do with. But yet, we know that the tragedy that that can bring, if that's what we're living for, right? The book of Ecclesiastes is all about, hey, look, if you're living for all this stuff, it's going to end up meaningless to you. If you're putting your hope there, you're not going to be satisfied. 
So money's not going to satisfy. But, but we even struggle to be able to comprehend, man, what's it going to be like to, for somebody to be the heir of $156.7 billion? What would that be like, right? But notice what our author says, that Christ's inheritance is far more impressive than the inheritance of any of the kids of these billionaires. Because it says that Jesus is the heir of all things, of everything. And this is where our mind begins to start to falter and and not really be able to track and not really be able to understand what does this mean that that he's the heir of everything. So let's break it down a little bit here and talk about what some of this means. Psalm 2, 8 and 9. Psalm 2, 8 and 9, the psalmist says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is what we call a messianic psalm. In other words, this is a psalm having to do with a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And the Messiah is, Sunday school answer, one, two, three, Jesus. Jesus. Yes, the Messiah is Jesus. So Psalm 2 is about Jesus. And here, the, the Lord, the, Yahweh, God is saying, look, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, Jesus. Your inheritance, in other words. And the ends of the earth, your possession. And this is where it gets a, a little uncomfortable. Hey, you're going to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's a, a worship song from the 90s that used this as like a missions song. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. It's, it's not about that. This is about Jesus receiving the nations when he comes back to judge them, right? So part of the inheritance of the son is he's going to receive the authority to, to judge all peoples. And that's what he's saying in Psalm 2, 8 and 9. How about Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12 says this, out of the anguish of his soul. Okay, so this is a, not a messianic psalm, but a messianic prophecy. So this is Isaiah some 700 plus years before Jesus prophesying, writing about Jesus as the suffering servant. He says this in Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, shall Jesus make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, notice the language here, I, Yahweh, will divide with him, Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The, the idea, the language of inheritance here. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here part of Jesus' inheritance is the redeemed that he ransomed by his blood. So when it says that Jesus is the heir of all things, yes, he's going to judge the nations, but part of his inheritance is also not those that he's going to judge, but those that he has rescued, that he's ransomed by his blood. It's It's us. That's what it means there, that he's going to divide with him a portion with the many. That's us if you are in Christ, right? That's pretty cool. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll get here eventually, but Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, now notice this phrase, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we get here, I'll make the argument in much more detail, but let me just, spoiler alert right now, I think when it says for the joy that was set before him, I think what he's talking about there is the idea of eternity with those that he has saved, right? I, I think that's the, the joy that's brought by the cross. 
Some want to argue, well, it's, it's him returning to the glory that he once had with the Father. Yeah, I think that's part of it, but I, I don't think that's all of it. I think it's more so the fact that he's looking forward to spending eternity with all of us and that that's the joy set before him to which he goes and endures the cross and despises the shame and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the heir of all things. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, this phrase that needs a little bit of explanation where he says he's the image of the invisible God and then Paul says the firstborn of all creation. And this is where those who are in the camp that would say that Jesus is not fully God, that he's created, want to point the finger at the Bible and say, see, the Bible says that Jesus is created. He's the firstborn. But we have to understand what we mean by the phrase firstborn. Culturally, the firstborn was more about the position in a family than it was the birth order. It wasn't chronology as much as it was rank, okay? So this was a title that didn't have anything to do with chronology, but your authority, your position, your supremacy, your place of honor in the family. So when Paul says that that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying chronologically he was the first one created. He's saying, no, he holds the place of utmost importance over all of creation. That he is the heir. The firstborn received the double inheritance. That he is the, the chief. That he is supreme over all of creation. He's dealing with the supremacy of Christ there. So that first statement, he is the heir of all things. But what else does he say? He's the creator of all things. Look at that. He says, through him, right? Through him, he has created all things, created the world. Well, that word through suggests that Jesus is the instrument or the means by which God created everything. This is backed up again elsewhere in the scriptures. If we look to Colossians chapter 1 again, there's going to be a lot of parallels between our passage tonight and Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 16. For by him, by Jesus, that is, all things were created. How many things were created by Jesus? Everything, right? All things were created by Jesus in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, everything was created through him. And notice he's the heir of all things and for him there at the end. So he's the creator. John 1, 1 through 4, right? You know that passage. In the beginning was the the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was there in the beginning with God, right? And then he goes on to say, nothing that has been created was created apart from the word. It's my paraphrase of that, but that's basically what he says there in John 1. So John is echoing the same thought, that that Jesus is the creator of all things, that God created through Jesus. We can even go all the way back to Proverbs chapter 8, verses 24 through 31. You can look it up later, but Proverbs 8, 24 through 31. And there's a, a place where wisdom is personified as being the instrument by which God created the world. And a lot of people are saying this is an allusion to Jesus as the, the wisdom metaphor or imagery there even all the way back in Proverbs 8. Well, the creator, and I've, I've said this before with y'all, the, the creator has what over his creation? Authority over his creation. So he's the heir, meaning that he holds the supreme position over everyone. And then he's the creator, which means he holds supreme authority over everyone. And when you take those two things, uh, the, the conclusion is, is that there can only be one view of Jesus that holds. And that is that he is not just Jesus, meek and humble, and this baby born in a manger or this weak and crucified individual on a cross. No, that, that Jesus is now not just our earthly savior, but our heavenly Lord. Our Lord. And the, the reality in life is there can only be one Lord to whom we subject ourselves to. Jesus taught that you can't serve both God and money. You could substitute whatever because you can only have one Lord in your 
life. And as we're talking about why is Jesus worthy of worship, well, certainly a Lord, whoever your Lord or your master is, is the one who's worthy of worship. And you can only have one master in your life. The question is, is it Jesus? Well, it should be Jesus. Because no one else can say of themselves or have anyone else say about them what the writer of Hebrews has just said about Jesus in these opening two statements. That he is the heir of all things and the creator of all things. That he holds the supreme position and the supreme authority over everything. Why should we worship Jesus? Point number one tonight is this. Worship Jesus because he is Lord. Worship him because he's Lord. What does it mean that he's Lord? It means that he holds the supreme position and the supreme authority over anyone else, including you and me. All right, well, how do I worship him as Lord? What should that look like? Let me suggest a couple of subpoints. First is by submitting to his word. Submitting to his word. How do I worship Jesus as, as Lord because he's Lord? Well, it begins by me saying, okay, I'm going to agree to submit to whatever you have said in your word. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Y'all, Jesus is Lord. We should care about what he said. We should care about his word. If he is the one who is supreme in rank and supreme in authority, and he has spoken to us, which last week, that was the whole point, right? If he has spoken to us, then we need to listen. And not just listen, but submit to his word. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent and children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. There the apostle Paul is saying the same thing that he did in Colossians chapter three. He's saying, look, you need to hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the scriptures, the word of Christ in Colossians 3.16, the word of life there in Philippians. And so we need to not just hear his word, sit under his word, but we need to submit to his word. And here's the thing, students. In this culture, in this landscape, our world is going to do everything it possibly can to undermine the authority of God's word and to cause you to doubt the authority of God's word. And more often than not, perhaps more often than in any other point, certainly more often than at any other point that I can remember since I've been alive, which is almost 37 years now, you are going to come more often to forks in the road where you're going to have to decide between the culture that we live in and the Bible that we profess to believe in. The idea that America is a Christian country, that jumped on a spaceship and flew out with Elon Musk's guy that he stuck in the convertible and shot out into outer space. Okay, it is no more. America is not a Christian nation. Do not believe that lie. We're no longer riding on the coattails of any sort of deist that founded this place or anything else. We are a godless place. And more often than you will believe, you are going to be forced to, and so many of you already have, make decisions between, am I going to follow the authority of Jesus or am I going to follow the authority that the world wants me to follow? And let me just encourage you, exhort you, plead with you, implore you, Choose Jesus every time. Every time. Why? Because he's Lord and nobody else is. Nobody else 
is. So we follow him as we worship him as Lord, rather by submitting to his word, but also not only submitting to his word, but submitting to his truth. Submitting to his truth. Jesus and truth are inseparable in scripture. John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, or to the Father, rather, except through me. John 18, 37, Jesus before Pilate. Pilate says to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus in truth, Jesus truth, Jesus truth, Jesus truth. The the two are inseparable. But again, we live in a world that's going to want to substitute the truth of the word of God, the truth of the word of Christ for the truth of the world. They're going to want to undermine the truth of God's word time and time and time again and say that your definition of what is true is outdated. Your definition of what is true is 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 bigoted. Your definition of what is true is wrong for this, that, or the other reason. But here's the thing. You worship a savior who exists outside of culture, outside of history, outside of time, who has created all of it and held it all together. And the thing is, his definition of truth is not subject to the whims and wills of fallen humanity. And so when you are brought face to face with somebody who says, I can't believe you still believe that because that's so outdated, that's so ancient, that's so old-fashioned, that's so intolerant, that's so bigoted. If it's what Jesus has said, you're not wrong, they're wrong, because what you are doing is you are submitting not to your truth, but Jesus's truth. And so you worship him as Lord by submitting to him as Lord and submitting to his word, submitting to his truth. Again, we just sang that song, Nothing Compares, and we sang these next two statements in that song. The next statement is that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance, it's a word that means brilliance. Here's a word for you, effulgence, right? Overwhelming light. He's the brilliance, he's the radiance of the glory of God. Again, scripture bears this out elsewhere. John 1, 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Isaiah 6. You remember Isaiah 6, yes? The prophet is there and he's brought into the throne room. And all of a sudden he's ushered in and he sees this amazing vision. And he he sees somebody seated on a throne. That Jesus himself will later say was was him in in John's gospel, right? That, That he sees a vision of Christ, but he's so overwhelmed because this is not Jesus incarnate. In other words, this is not Jesus with the veil of his flesh. This is Jesus in all of the radiance of the glory of God. And Isaiah is there and he's seeing and he's describing the vision. He goes, look, as far as I can go is the train of his robe, which is filling the temple. And then he says, and there were these angelic creatures that were flying above him. And one was crying to the other one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full 
full of his glory, full of the radiance of his glory. And Isaiah says, then the, the, the foundations, the thresholds of the temple were shaking, not at the voice of Jesus even, but at the voice of the angels crying out about the holiness and the glory of Christ. So when we read he's the radiance of the glory of God, that's what we need to see. The Mount of Transfiguration, you remember that? He takes his disciples, a couple of them up on the mountain, and then all of a sudden he, there he is. That Isaiah 6, Jesus is standing right there, and what do his disciples do? Nope, we're done. And they hit the ground, right? Or Saul on the road to Damascus, if you guys were in our services, which hopefully you are, either last night or this morning, started to talk about the, 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 the blinding light. The, the glory of Christ shows up to grab Saul's attention. He's the radiance of the glory of God. But then the second thing that you sang, not just the radiance of the glory of God, but also the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. The, the idea is that of an impression of, an, of a seal, not like the seals that swim with Nick when he goes scuba diving, but like the seal of a, of a ring, of a signet ring, where they would press it into the wax on an envelope, and then when they would pull the seal back, the exact impression of the seal would be left on the wax. It's exact. It's an exact representation there, right? The writer of Hebrews here is using physical language to express a, a likeness that is non-physical, that is immaterial. In John 14, 9, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You can't make that statement unless it's an exact replica. Nature for nature is what we're talking about. Essence for essence. God for God. Right? Even though I've got twins, Sam can't come up here and say, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen John. Yeah, maybe certain elements like their height and their genuine, general appearance, but they're different people. That, doesn't, that, that eventually falls short. That eventually stops. But Jesus can say with all integrity, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. In John 1, 1 through 2, I referenced it earlier, but these, this first part, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so distinct from God in person, but the Word was God, same as God in essence. We're dealing with Trinitarian realities and, and concepts here, which can get a little bit confusing, but basically what the author is saying here is this. He's saying, look, there is a, a oneness of essence, that they are both God, Jesus and the Father, both God, both sharing the same nature. And yet there's a, a distinction of, of persons there. But at the end, both imply the same conclusion, and that is what Jesus is God. And just like the, the point about him being Lord, no one else can say that Jesus, that the, the things about Jesus that we, we looked at earlier, no one else can say that they're the heir of all things. No one else can say that they are the, the one through whom all things were created. Well, just like that, no one else can say that they are the exact imprint of God. No one else can say that they are the radiance of the glory of God. That only belongs to Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus is God, which is the second reason why you should worship him. Worship Jesus because he's God.
worship Jesus because he's God. And, and, and this sounds basic, y'all, and in some ways it, it's, it's meant to be. Because the reasons why we should worship, you don't have to be an ivory tower seminary graduate to understand. The reasons why we should worship God are simple. The reasons why we should worship Jesus are basic. The reasons why Jesus is better than anyone else, than any other God or any other idol or any other thing or any other pursuit or any other relationship. The reasons why are not hard. They're there. They're easy. The difficulty comes in what are you going to do with them, right? Are you going to believe them and then live in light of them? But the second reason why we worship Jesus is because he's God. And it, it, these statements don't stop here. He goes on and he says he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love that. That's so cool to think about, right? Colossians 1.17, I told you there's a lot of parallels here. Colossians 1.17 speaks of Jesus. He's before all things in, in, in rank. In fir- he's first place. He is preeminent. And in him, all things hold together. I love that. I love that probably because I really was not good at science. So my mom's a doctor, by the way. So if you want to come at me afterwards and be like, well, that's why you, you took that approach because you don't love science. I love my mom and my mom's a doctor. So therefore I, by proximity, love science. But here's the thing. Biology doesn't work because of DNA and atoms and blood cells and brain synapses. and None of that is the explanation for why our bodies are functioning the way they are. You know what the answer is to why your body is functioning the way it is? Jesus. Oh, come on. That's so simplistic. Yep. That's the point. That's the point. We are here because of Jesus through whom he created everything. If you're willing to go with me there and you want to argue about why your lungs are pumping, come on. He holds everything together. He, in this case, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That word upholds there. It's, it's not like Jesus is like bearing up under some weight going, oh man, please, please, can we just be done with this? No, no, no. It's the idea of carrying from one point to the other. He's sustaining the ark. The trajectory of the universe is what the writer is saying here. That everything is unfolding and it's unfolding according his, to his plan. So physically, at an at a, at a earthly level, that means Jesus is sustaining the arc of day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade, eon to eon. Why is history progressing? Because Jesus is progressing it. But then we go beyond that and we say spiritually, Jesus is the reason that we are progressing from creation to fall to redemption to ultimately the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, and the consummation of all things, right? The, the reason why we're moving that way is, is not by happenstance. It's because Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he's carrying everything. He's transferring everything from point A to point B. And guess who is the only one who's worthy of doing that and has the authority to do that? His name is Jesus and he is God. And he's worthy of our worship because of that. And yet, y'all, how sad is it that more often than anything else, what we find in our culture, in our society, is that the name of Jesus is used far more as a 
curse word than it is in reverence of Christ. In James chapter 2, 19, James says, you believe that, that God is one? Okay. So do the demons. And here's the thing. If you read, and, and, and I'll admit a, a partial ignorance on this because I, I don't know beyond what we have in Scripture. But when I read of the demons and their response to Jesus in the Gospels, I don't see the demons blaspheming Jesus in the Gospels the way that you probably have blasphemed Christ, perhaps even this week. I see them fearful of Jesus. I see them reverent. What have we to do with you, Holy One of God? They cry out. Do you worship him as God? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Only God can say that. I and the Father are one. John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Again, the exact imprint. There's no, there's no difference here. He is an exact representation of the Father because they are both of the same essence. They are both God, very God. Grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 19, if you would, because I want you to get a, an anti-Hobby Lobby picture of Jesus in your mind so that we can start talking about what it looks like to worship Jesus. And if your mom likes Hobby Lobby and you've got the white dude with the long hair hanging on your kitchen wall, that's fine. It's not Jesus, but that's fine. I'm not telling you to go home and, and rebuke your mama, okay? But here, I want you to understand that Jesus does not hang on the shelves of Hobby Lobby and he's not this meek, like, wounded little baby up in heaven waiting for God to go, okay, grab your razor scooter and get on down to earth. It's time to go. No, let's see who Jesus is and see if we can figure out why we should be worshiping him with a little bit of reverence here in Revelation chapter 19. Pick up in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's the blood of his enemies, by the way. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, meaning to kill them. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Y'all, you want to think about Jesus right now? This is Jesus right now, waiting for the Father to say, okay, go. I think if this Jesus were to show up here in this room, all of us would be on our face. I mentioned this is, is simple, and it's been simple throughout the ages. 
way back in 8325 at this thing called the Nicene Council. They came up with this creed, which was a statement of the faith. Basically, what these creeds were intended to do, they were help, to help kind of put the bumpers in place for churches so that they would know what doctrine should look like and how to define things. And they said this about Jesus. They said, we believe also in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, the radiance of the glory of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, not created. We're not dealing with a created being in Jesus, being of one substance, one essence with the Father, the exact imprint of his nature and by whom all things were made. Jesus is God. He's not another character in the Marvel universe or storybook character. He's not just a historical figure. He's not just a good teacher or a prophet. And he's not your parachute. He's not your fire insurance or your get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus is God. And that's why we worship him. That's why we can sing the songs that we sang earlier tonight, worshiping Jesus. Only God should be worshiped. And so if we were to sing these songs and substitute the name Jesus for anyone else, we would be committing idolatry. But because Jesus is God, he's worthy of our worship, and we can sing the songs that we were earlier singing because he is indeed worthy of our worship. Why should we worship Jesus? Why is Jesus better than any of the other gods out there? Because Jesus is God. And nobody else can lay claim to that. These next two statements, these final two move from the realm of the cosmic that we've been talking about to the personal. I think we'll be more familiar for you as far as why you think you should worship Jesus. Jesus is also here the purifier of our sins. It says in the passage, making purification for sins. That word purification means to to cleanse. It's from the, the same root word where we get our English word cathartic. You go do something, you say, man, that was really cathartic for me. It was refreshing. It was cleansing. 2 Peter 1.9 says this, whoever lacks these qualities, he just listed off a bunch of virtues that we're supposed to supplement our faith with. Whoever lacks these qualities, he's so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was, here's our word, cleansed from his former sins. He was purified from, his, from our former sins. Paul in Romans chapter three describes it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the bad news good news, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here's how that redemption happened. Whom God put forward as a, this word, propitiation, which means to be cleansed from your sins, to have your sins removed from you. And that propitiation, that cleansing, that purification that we're talking about here took place, how? By his blood at the cross. And it's to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so Jesus is the one who has made purification for our sins. But not only that, he's also the one now who is seated at the right hand of, the the author says, the majesty on high. We can say the, the Father. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He sat down 
we sit down to eat. We sit down to talk with somebody. We sit down, whatever. But a priest wouldn't sit down until he was done with his service, done with his role of offering a sacrifice. And so when it says that Jesus is the one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, what the author's saying there is that Jesus not only has made purification for your sins, but he's done. It's done. Again, we'll get here, but Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, too, I read it earlier, but now let's focus on a different part. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is finished with this, which means, y'all, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. You don't need to re-sacrifice Christ. Christ doesn't need to be offered again for you. You are forgiven to the utmost, why he says in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, that he ever lives to make intercession for them, that is done. There's, there's no need anymore to, uh, to have any other sacrifice. You don't have to, to work off your sins as the Catholic imagery has of, of going and confessing my sins, which is straight up, flat out, heretical, no way around it, because a priest can't tell me, hey, you've got to do penance, because when a priest tells me, hey, you've got to do penance, what they're telling you, me is, and what they're telling you is, Jesus' death wasn't enough to cover these sins, so you need to go work off what he couldn't do, and that's nothing but flat-out heresy. See, the purification is done. And Jesus is seated. And this is another reason why we should worship him, y'all. Probably the easiest reason for us to worship him. The most accessible reason for us to worship him. Why? Because he is Savior. Worship Jesus because he's Savior. We sing the songs, right? Thank you for the cross. Living hope. This is amazing grace. In Christ alone, Jesus paid it all. Jesus over everything. Nothing compares. And so many times we sing these songs and the songs are all about what we're talking about here. That Jesus has delivered us from our sins and our transgressions. And rightly so, y'all. This should be our song from age to age. It should be the song that never ends. It should be the song that we continually have on our lips, at the forefront of our minds, on the tip of our tongues, we should never be able to get rid of it because we should never get over what Christ has done for us at the cross. And this is related to these other two points because here's what's so phenomenal and astounding about that is that the Jesus who is Lord and the Jesus who is God is the Jesus who is your Savior. Does that amaze you? Does that cause you to worship him? I hope it does. And, and, and we, yeah, it should never get comfortable for us. And to think that you would use his name as a cuss word? The Lord of all creation, the one who created all of it, the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory, took on flesh, came to earth. Why? Because we needed him to. If he didn't, we were all destined for hell. Without Christ. 
Paul says in Romans chapter five that it wasn't when we were attractive, when we were appealing, when we were moving forward towards God. It wasn't when, hey, we were kind of cleaning ourselves up and getting our act together. It's not when God was like, oh, Jesus, they're kind of doing a little bit better. What do you think about going and dying for them now? That's not what happened. No, Paul says in Romans five, it was while we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies that Christ died for us. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the end of that passage in Colossians chapter one that has so many parallels with the text that we're in. And just like this one ends by focusing on his role as our savior, Paul's passage in Colossians one wraps up by focusing on Jesus as our savior. And it's this climax. It's like, consider this. And it's, it's mind boggling because the last thing that you would think is that this one that Paul was describing there in Colossians one and the one that the, the writer of Hebrews was describing in, in Hebrews one would end up coming to earth, Philippians chapter two, taking on the form of a servant, being found in likeness of of fallen man, right? Being found in the flesh. The last thing that we would expect would be that he would do that. And then not, not only that, but that he would humble himself and become obedient to the point of death. And not just death, but even death on a cross. Is that enough to cause you to worship Jesus? If not, I've got nothing else. But it's enough, guys. It's enough forever and ever and ever and ever. It's enough to fuel our worship, not just here, but it's enough to fuel our worship when we die and we go to stand before Jesus and we get to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And that's gonna be why we're gonna worship him forever and ever and ever. Jesus, you are our Lord. Jesus, you are God. And Jesus, you are my savior. And I'm so grateful for that reality. So hopefully after this, y'all, you have something to say when somebody comes up to you and says, why is Jesus better? Why should I worship Jesus? And my fear is if, if, if you're able to tell somebody why you love Taylor Swift so much and why you love LeBron James so much, but you fail to be able to tell somebody why Jesus is so great, then there's a problem in your affections. And I'm not telling you that you can't love other things and other people, right? My wife is amazing. She's beautiful. She's kind. She's selfless. She's fun. She's strong. She put together a a grill table today by herself with tools, like she used screwdriver and stuff. She's crazy wise. Some of you ladies have already experienced. She's humble. She's godly. Y'all, she's devoted to the Lord. She's a servant. Those are all reasons why I love my wife and more. But here's the thing, guys. I need to be ready to tell you why Jesus is amazing more easily than I can tell you why I love my wife. Because he needs to be more amazing to me than my wife is. And whatever that is for you, whatever that thing or that person or that sport or that hobby or that pursuit is for you that you just love, that you just easily talk to people about, whatever that thing is, you need to be able to tell people more readily why Jesus is better than that. 
because he is. My question is, can you? Are you ready? Somebody comes up to you this week and says, hey, why is Jesus so great? Why do you bother with church? Why do you bother with Jesus? What's the big deal? Why is Jesus better than Allah? Why is Jesus better than, than this religion over here? Why, what gives you the right to say that what Jesus' word says is, is true and everything else is a lie? What gives you the right to tell me how I should live my life? Are you guys ready to answer that question? You should be. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to begin to understand is Jesus is better more worthy of worship than anything or anyone else. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for Christ, thankful for Jesus, thankful for this reality, this truth, thankful that he came after us. Lord, thankful for that last point that he is our savior. Because if he's not our savior, Lord, the reality exists still that he is God and he's Lord, but we are in trouble. Lord, I pray for our students in this room that if for any of them he's not savior, I pray that even tonight would be the night that that changes that they would bow the knee to Jesus, that they would believe that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, that he rose from the dead so that they will live with him forever and ever, and that he has given them his spirit so that they can follow him as their Lord and their King. Lord, I pray that that would happen tonight. Aside from that, Lord, help us to think well tonight about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to worship him a little bit more this week than we did last week, a little bit more tomorrow than we did today. And it always make it our goal to say, Lord, we want to excel still more in worshiping Jesus for the rest of our lives and for all of eternity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.